And so that's how chapter 13 ended. As you come to chapter 14, Chedorlaomer, who comes from what is now modern Iran, he came with a coalition of kings, and they had been charging tribute to the people, the kings of the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, for 13 years. And so they come down when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah decide they're not going to pay their tributes anymore, and they're ready to declare war, and they're ready for a rumble. So Chedorlaomer comes down with his group, and they rout the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they take all the people with them and all the goods and all the wealth, including Lot, Abram's nephew. So the news comes to Abram that his nephew Lot has been taken captive by Chedorlaomer. And so tonight we're going to pick up our story, our text, from that element. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebin, the trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother, that would be Lot, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheve, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich." except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And this is the story of Abram's great triumph and the introduction to us of one of the most mysterious, important people in the Bible, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, in the very next chapter it says that God appeared to Abram and said, I am, do not be afraid, which generally means we are, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So we know from what we've seen so far with Abram leading up to this, this event, a military commando raid, very successful one and certainly life-threatening and one on behalf of others to rescue them. And then on the heels of all that, the priest, Melchizedek, the kings of Sodom, and then when it all kind of settles, after you have something super intense and super emotional, like a a life-changing experience, combat, something like that, and of course, you would, this certainly is combat, so we can look for the type of post-traumatic stress that you might have from something like this. When it all settles down, and then God says, hey, I'm your shield and I'm your great reward. And even though that's next week's passage for Tuesday night, it is worth noting in the fullness of the context here of what's going on. So tonight, as we think about this passage, I would call this give and take, okay? 
Things are given and things are not taken. And if there ever is a contrast of what winners face or champions, because everyone loves a winner, and Abram's a winner, it's the contrast of Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, standing there about the same time the king of Sodom is standing there as well. We read in the previous verse, verse 17, that the king came out to him, Sodom, Gomorrah, those guys. And they would be slightly embarrassed because they were defeated. And I didn't tell you this, when they were attacked by Chedomar, they fled. The kings fled to save their skin and the people were taken away. So that'd be kind of embarrassing. They didn't lead from the front. And then Melchizedek comes out and we go back to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So in this gap here, we have this Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is crucial to us in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is what we call a type, or he could be a theophany, which is an appearance of Christ, a Christophany, or theophany as it could be called, in the Old Testament. For example, when Joshua is getting ready to engage the battle against Jericho, there stood the general, the commander of the Lord's army, and Joshua said to him, are you for us or against us? And he goes, no, but as the commander of the Lord's army, I've now come. Joshua fell on his knees and worshipped him, and the general, the commander, accepted that worship. And angels don't accept worship, just so you know. So there's, there's different types of theophanies, and whether it's a vision or something of that sort, or a type, we know in Colossians that all the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus coming to live a perfect sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for and to rise from the grave for our hope and justification. Colossians says it's a shadow of things to come. So whether this is an Old Testament appearance of Christ, which is possible, or a type of Christ, which is absolute, Melchizedek is very, very important to us in understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ for our personal salvation. So we need to take a good look at him tonight because this is where he's introduced to us. So let's talk about this person, Melchizedek. We're told he's the king of Salem. That's the prelude to Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem. Well, who's the ultimate king of Jerusalem? Who's going to reign on Mount Zion? Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate king. All the kings after David, when David tried to build the temple and God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. And God promised King David around 1000 BC that from him and his offspring would come the king whose reign would never end. And that king, of course, is Jesus Christ. And all those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah coming to rule and reign on the earth, they're coming to pass in his second coming. He came the first time as a servant to die on the cross for our sins, but he's coming the second time as the king to reign over the earth. He shall reign over all the earth. It's very clear in the Old Testament prophecies. And so the king of Salem here, Melchizedek, is a prelude to when Jerusalem would be the main city and there would be kings. He precedes it. He came with the communion elements, which is timely tonight, seeing as we're going to be having communion. But he came with the bread and the wine, which would be a sign of the fellowship in the Middle Eastern culture. Again, these are events around 2000 BC. So 2000 years before Christ, 1000 years before David, and 4000 years from our timeline right now. But it to the Lord, he's not linear. He's outside of it. So a thousand days, a thousand years is a day with the Lord. But just for our timeline to understand these things. So Melchizedek is the king, and he's the priest of God Most High. Now, in the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, which comes 
500 years after this story, you have priests, they're all of the Levites, and then later on, about 400, 500 years later, you have kings, but you don't have kings that are priests. In fact, you get someone like Uzziah, who's a king that thinks he can be a priest, he goes in the temple and he turns into leprosy. They were distinct and different. But here, Melchizedek, who comes to Abram, the father of faith, the patriarch of all Jews, and the patriarch, really the father of those of faith in Jesus Christ, we're told in the New Testament. And he's presented as a king of Salem, which means peace, by the way. And of course, Jesus is the prince of peace. And he's a high priest, of the, uh, he's the high priest, a priesthood of the most high God. He has the communion elements. We're told that he blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram. He pronounced blessings on Abram. And he blessed God. So he blessed Abram and he blessed God. This is what we get contextually from him. And of course, Abram tithed to him, which we'll get to. A thousand years later, when King David lived, and he's a prophet, we're told King David's a prophet. Peter in Acts chapter 2 tells us that David is a prophet. Of course, he was because he wrote a good portion of scripture. And God spoke through David, you know, that famous Psalm 110, where he said, you are my son, today I've begotten you, in a reference to Jesus Christ. It's clearly Jesus Christ. And then in the same context, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek here, a thousand years, that's 10 centuries Nothing ever again of Melchizedek, this mysterious king and priest who appeared to Abram. But God speaks prophetically through David that his son Jesus Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, if that was just there, it'd be one of those passages when you go through your Bible, you go like, wow, that's really, yeah, like, wow. Or as Chuck would say back in the 70s, far out, right? Just, wow. But then in the book of Hebrews, we get more on this, and this is important. Because this Melchizedek, this is the one time we get him until we get to the poetic books, which will be quite some time. So we need to understand him and how he applies to our faith tonight as we're gathered here in Jesus' name. So in the book of Hebrews, when the Holy Spirit was leading the writer to help people understand that we're saved by faith, not by works, of the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, but they were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And once we have Jesus, we don't go back to being Jews. This, of course, was a challenge in the early church, and the book of Acts records much of this for us. But the challenge was, since the Jews received Jesus, or he came to the Jews first, and the apostles were Jewish, and the early church was all Jewish in the book of Acts, that as they began to be led by the Holy Spirit to see non-Jews or partial Jews, Samaritans, mixed ethnicity and religious beliefs, they came to the Lord. And then the Gentiles, all non-Jews, began to come to the Lord, like in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, that Peter and the apostles who were there had to defend that, that God was saving Gentiles or the nations. But God had prophesied all along that the gospel wasn't just for Jews, but for the nations And that's why when Paul wrote the Romans, he said the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentiles. But we're all saved through faith. So now, when the author of Hebrews is writing this letter, he's writing to believers in Jesus Christ who are of a Jewish background, who've received Christ, 
and they're supposedly saved by faith and grace, just like the Gentiles, like Titus and Timothy. But then they're like, well, you know, it's not that easy just to be saved by faith. You've got to do works. You gotta, it's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus baptism in our name. It's Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's Jesus plus church only on Saturday. Like all the things that people come up with these days in the church that make us weird and quirky and ungodly and divisive. It's religion. Jesus plus this. But you see, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when we stand justified on the day of the Lord, when we breathe our last, it won't be Jesus plus anything. It'll be you looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. It'll be you declared righteous because you received Christ when you heard the gospel. It'll be you declared righteous at the end of your journey because you kept your eyes and you kept your faith and your focus on Jesus Christ, not on you. We go up and down, but the righteousness of God that is imputed or given to us when we receive Christ is a perfect, complete righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And it's with us throughout our entire journey, the common denominator that we have tonight as we gather in his name. We are perfectly, fully saved because of who he is, not what you've done or the kind of week you've had or what you're going to do on Monday. But you're saved through faith. It's not Jesus plus you being good on Monday. It's Jesus crucified for your sins, and Jesus risen for your justification and seated at the right hand of Father to ever live and intercede for us. And the problem with the context of the epistle to the Hebrews is like, well, it's Jesus plus being circumcised, and we better circumcise these Gentiles. So you tell Titus, get in here and get circumcised. And Paul said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Titus is saved by grace through faith. He's not saved because he becomes, he didn't become a Christian so he could become a Jew and put himself under the law. He's saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this was the conflict of the early church. And it's there for us in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. So as these Hebrew believers, Jewish believers, began to be persecuted and lose property and finances and be uh, expunged from their neighborhoods and families and estates and all this stuff, they began to say, well, okay, we're still good Jews. We're still like, you know, we're circumcised. We keep the law of Moses. We're kosher. We're these things. We don't eat meat offered idols. You know, we don't eat bacon, God forbid, and all these different things that were going backwards. So when the Holy Spirit was leading the author of Hebrews to write to them, he said, he's telling them, you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not Jesus plus circumcision and the Old Testament law. It's you and Jesus. And so to affirm this position of justification through faith by grace, he appeals to Melchizedek. And that's why he's so important to us. That's why he is so important to us, because he's a type of Christ, if not Jesus himself, appeared in the Old Testament. So in building a case about Melchizedek, put your thinking caps on. This is really important. Because if any of you want to depart from grace... I would say to you, like Paul said to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, would you be perfected in the flesh? No one on my watch in this church should depart from grace to go to the works of the law, to become a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist and add some type of yoke of legalism to your faith. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you can get weird and religious and think you can save yourself. But Melchizedek came 2,000 years before Christ came so you would know that your confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised for you personally. In writing the Hebrews, building the case for Jesus being saved by grace, not Jesus plus Old Testament law and being a Jew and being circumcised and keeping the Ten Commandments, which no one can keep anyways. 
he said this. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 5, it says, So Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was he, that is the Father, who said of him, now quoting Psalm 110, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Also, he says in another place, that would be the same psalm, You are a priest forever, speaking of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, now speaking of Jesus, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, the Father who was able to save him from the death, that would be the death of a cross, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected or completed, he became the author, this is Jesus, of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God, Jesus that is, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Melchizedek type is also reflected between the father and the son. And he says, I'd like to tell you more about this, but you're hard of hearing. And then he comes back to it, another chapter. So now is what he says in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, and Melchizedek first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, that is Melchizedek, remains a priest continually. So see how he's compared now to Jesus? There's no genealogy for Melchizedek. We don't have his parents. We don't know where he came from. There's nothing. It's like, he's like eternal. He's outside the dimension that comes into dimension or something like that. By the way, this is why many people believe and speculate that Melchizedek might actually be an angel. Because he has no beginning or ending in the timeline of, of time, space, and matter. There's no record of parents. And by the way, with the Jews, genealogy is everything, right? How many times have we seen a genealogy so far in, in Genesis? I mean, we get a genealogy every couple chapters. Melchizedek has no genealogy here or anywhere else. And here's the comparison to Jesus. It's very important. Stay with me. Verse 4, chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, now talking about the Jews and the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, the priest, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the Old Testament law, that is, from their brethren, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he who received, excuse me, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, talking about the Jewish priesthood. But there he received them of whom is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, here's where you have to think and stay with me. This is really important. So, 1500 BC, God gives the Jews the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, the Levitical priesthood, uh, the Jewish feasts and holidays, the animal sacrificial system, and then the civil law, how to govern a nation, kidnapping, murder, rape, all that kind of stuff, how you deal with these things, and how to have a civil society, how to enforce law. The law had three portions. 
The portion of the religious part, the animal sacrifices and the holidays that all represent Christ, they were entrusted to the Levites. So remember, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And here is Levi. And from that 12, one of those 12 tribes, all the priests of the Old Testament did their service. You couldn't just say, I want to be a priest. It's like, well, if you're not from the tribe of Levi, you can't be a priest. So if you're from Naphtali or Zebulun or Gad or Nash or Asher or whatever, it's like, no, no, but I want to be a priest. You can't be a priest. You had to come, you had to be a Jew. And so that means you came from Father Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And you had to be from the tribe of Levi. The Levites were entrusted with the priesthood. So from 1500 BC till the time Christ came, the Levites did the priesthood. The animal sacrifices, they did the Passover lambs for the people in the public square during the holidays. They did all that stuff. And so the Hebrews in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, they're like, well, we're going back to the law. And the writer of Hebrews is going like, God's saying, why would you do that? Why would you go to an inferior priesthood with animal sacrifices that could never take away your sins? I gave you a superior priesthood through my son, Jesus Christ, who ever lives and reigns as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites. So here's the visual. When Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek from the spoil, he gave a tenth, a tithe. All Israel's within him. From his loins comes Isaac, Jacob, and all the descendants. As we saw in the previous chapter, his descendants will be like the sands of the sea or the dust of the earth. Every Jew traces their genealogy to Abraham, including the Levites. And so the point of the Holy Spirit is that when Abraham gave his tenth to Melchizedek, the one that gives is always inferior to the superior. So he's bowing the knee to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is clearly the superior in this situation. Abraham's bowing the knee and giving the tithe. So the one receiving the tithe is greater than the one giving it. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than all the descendants of Abraham, including the Levites. So the priesthood of the Levites is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Because the priesthood of the Levites is in the loins of Abraham, and he's bowing the knee on behalf of every Jew to Melchizedek, who's a superior priesthood. And God says in Psalm 110 that Jesus is a priest according to the Lord Melchizedek, of which there's no beginning or ending. It precedes the Levitical priesthood, and it's superior to it, and it's eternal. It's an eternal priesthood. So that's why Melchizedek is such a, a mysterious, important person to us in the Bible. And it warrants an entire night on a Saturday night to understand who he is because he is a type of Christ. And he affirms to us, the story of Melchizedek affirms to us that you and I, when we have to face the grave and we're dying of cancer or dying of old age, that we face it with Jesus Christ, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of the priesthood, which puts the burden on us to save ourselves. But the burden is on Jesus Christ, who's already saved us. And that's the significance of Melchizedek. He's a type, a shadow of things to come. Christ came 2,000 years later, but halfway to there, 1,000 B.C., God spoke through David that his son, the Messiah, would be of the order of Melchizedek. And here in the New Testament, warning these ethnic Jewish Christians from going backwards to the Old Testament. He's like, why would you do that? Why would you go backwards? In fact, he goes on to say this, about this, the order of Melchizedek. He said, Jesus, in verse 22 of Hebrews 7, it says, by so much more, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. 
because he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites. Jesus couldn't be a a priest according to the Levites because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which is the line of the kings. But he is a king and a priest because his priesthood is not from the Levites. His priesthood is from Melchizedek, which is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. So he's the king and the priest of our salvation. He's not only the author and finisher of our faith, he's the king of our faith and he's the priest of our faith. And that's why it's all summed up in Hebrews 8 verse 1 where it says, now this is the main point. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. See, if the descendants of Levite were your high priest and you're going backwards into some kind of self-righteous religion, I feel sorry for you. But our high priest is Jesus Christ, according to Melchizedek, and he ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father right now. Therefore, we're told we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. That he hears us and he intercedes for us. So you're going through a hard time, he's interceding for you. Before you're told that you're fired, he's interceding for you. Before you lied and slandered against, he's interceding for you. Before you have an accident that affects the rest of your life physically, he's interceding for you. When the doctor looks at it and says, you have terminal cancer, he's interceding for you before that day came. When the doctor says, your daughter has cancer and it's stage four, he's interceding for you. Before you saw that moment, in that moment, and after that moment, and everything you'll see from that moment. And I'm very worked up because I'm passionate because we need to know that Melchizedek is the type of Christ and Abraham, our father, bowed the knee to him. And he's linked to our salvation and the security of our faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God. God forbid that we think we can save ourselves. We are saved by grace, that through faith, not of works that anyone should boast. And we're told in Romans, God's a debtor to no man. He's the justifier of us through our faith in Jesus Christ, so that no man can boast before him. And it's hard enough to watch men boast about things of men, but how sad to watch men and women think they can boast before God that they can save themselves and get to heaven on some form of self-righteousness. Boy, wouldn't it be sad if heaven was filled with people who say themselves? You work with them. You drive to work with them. You live next door to them. Heaven would not be a good place if we could justify ourselves to get there. Because that's what you're dealing with here in time, space, and matter. Heaven's going to be a beautiful place because it's like the body of Christ right now. We're saved by faith through grace, according to grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, though we're not complete in a practical righteousness, we are signed, sealed, delivered in a positional righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And the story of this justification by faith and righteousness imputed to us begins with Melchizedek. And what we just read tonight. It's amazing. Melchizedek. It's an incredible person. Type of Christ with no beginning, no ending. Man, no genealogy. It's incredible. But there's more. Because in understanding who the person of Jesus Christ is, excuse me, the person of Melchizedek is, we understand how great our Savior is. And again, it's a justification by faith according to grace. Now, We need to consider Abram's response to this man, this priest, this king. Because the tithe of Abraham and Melchizedek teaches us a lot of things. As I already mentioned, it teaches us the superiority of Melchizedek to Abram. Thus, he is a type of Christ. And he gave a tithe, so he gave a tenth of what he recovered from... I mean, you almost missed the reality of the combat. Like swords, knives, to death hand-to-hand combat, like just the seriousness of it. 
just the reality of war and people killing each other and fighting to the death. Abraham's coming off such an intense, incredible experience. And he was prepared for that experience. He trained hundreds of men to be commandos and be prepared to make a raid to save others who are considered innocent in his eyes. And he went after him. We read he went after him. He didn't double clutch. He didn't overthink it. He went after him. It was time sensitive. And he took his crew and he built relationships and he built allies and they went after him. And they tracked those guys down all the way to Damascus. And it's no short journey from Samaria to Damascus. 60, 90 miles, maybe 100. They're trucking. It's a triathlon. They're moving. They're moving at a high speed, double time. The adrenaline pumping, they're going to war. And they're going to war against these kings who have had everybody subjected to them for over a decade and who just routed the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah and are taking people they love and care about, at least certainly with the case of Lot and his household. And so they have this incredible battle, and we don't have any insight like what Abram said to the Lord, God protect me, God be with me. But in the next chapter, he says, I'm your reward and I'm your shield. And here when Melchizedek comes in, he goes, Melchizedek says to him, and blessed be God of the most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So whether he cried out on, in route for the Lord to deliver the enemies into his hands, God did deliver the enemies into his hands. And how many times do we see in the Old Testament where God gave miraculous victories to the descendants of Abraham in being in the land? I mean, even go back even recently with the establishment of the nation of Israel. The existence of Israel as a nation right now as the descendants of Abraham in fulfillment of scripture is mind-bending. If you understand military and war and politics and global government politics with the UN, all this stuff, it's incredible that Israel's there right now. And praise the Lord, our country recognizes the capital of Israel as being Jerusalem. And God honors his country for that. He does. Make no mistake about that. You know, before Israel became a nation, before the UN Council, by a vote of three to two, allowed them to become a nation in 1948, under British mandate, no Jews or Israelites were allowed to have a firearm. Firearm was capital punishment. And the British who were occupying were as anti-Semitic as anyone else ever was, even in World War II in Eastern Europe, the Germans, everybody. And there's a lot of good books you can read about Menachem Begin and these sorts of people. They're amazing. Those Jewish leaders that were there when they became a nation, they were attacked by five countries simultaneously the moment they became a nation, the day of their independence. And having had to hide weapons under British mandate, they had to defend themselves from total annihilation, and they did. And after that long, protracted war of attrition with Israel in the Sinai in the 50s, in the Six-Day War, it was incredible. And in the Yom Kippur War of 73, they should have been wiped out. Certainly, they were caught off guard, and the Syrians should have wiped them out. And time and time again, there's incredible, miraculous stories where God protected the Israeli Defense Forces and the country from being routed and driven into the ocean, which is what their enemies want to do to them right now, which is why we're still in the news with everything, with Iran, the Middle East, 
Russia, Syria. This all just goes on and on and on and on. This is our generation, what we're seeing in our timeline. And at some point, it's going to play out. And it's Armageddon. Chuck thought it was going to be in the 70s. It might be in the 2020s. Who knows? Might Our grandkids and our great-grandkids may never even live to see it. But know this. It's going to play out a certain way. And so with that protection and that victory and the exhaustion of going 120 miles toward Damascus, fighting this military campaign, coming back with all the people, the relief, the rescue, the sense of rescue, like Radon and Tebi, how the people felt in their return. Think about, what were they about their life? They're going to be captives. They're going to be slaves. And they've been liberated by these commandos of Abram. And they come back. And here comes the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, like, hey, dude, you did it, right? Because that's how the world is. The world loves a winner. Abram's a winner by world standards. It's a success story. Where these kings fled like cowards, he pursued those enemies that they fled from, and he pursued them, and he crushed them, and they recovered everything. And before that conversation unfolds, there's Melchizedek. The bread, the wine, like, hey, priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, king of peace, after going to war. It's an amazing story. And he pronounces the blessings and declares the blessings and how the victory came about. And what does Abraham do? It's a very short verse. Oh, it's a short line in my Bible. It's, and he gave him a tithe of all. See, At this point, Abraham recognizes what's already been promised to him in the previous chapters, which we studied on Tuesday night, and which we saw. Because in the previous chapters, God said to Abraham, all this I'm giving to you, north, south, east, west. Don't worry about Lot picking the best land, whatever. Go for a walk, is what he told Abraham. Go for a walk. Walk in the land. Go for a walk in the land I'm giving you and your descendants, even though your wife can't have children and you have no descendants. Go for a walk. Go for a walk in your faith. Go for a walk and try on the shoes you're going to wear. Try being who you're meant to be before you're that person in a good way. Or as Pastor Chuck used to say, when you get to heaven, you don't want to act like you don't know what it's like to worship the Lord. So you should worship him in time, space, and matter so you've kind of got your worship muscles going and you're not caught off guard. And God told Abraham, look, I'm making these promises to you and I know your wife's beautiful and older and past childbearing, but... I'm going to give you more as if this dust could be your descendants. You could count it. You can't. So go walk. Go for a walk. God told him, go for a walk. Go north. Go south. Go east. Go west. You promise it. It's all yours because I'm going to give it all to you. And in that declaration, and I'm sure in that little hike he took with the Lord, a lot of things probably went on in his mind. And he came to a place of understanding that his whole life was the Lord. We see that in Genesis 22 when he offers up Isaac. You did not withhold your son, your only son. Like everything he has is the Lord's. Everything he is, his time, his breath of life, his wealth, his gold, his silver, his possessions, his commando unit, everybody. It's all the Lord's. He's a tent dweller in the land of promise. And he looks for the city which has foundations, the builder and maker is God. And everything he has is the Lord's. And so what does he do? He says, this is, I mean, the tithe is kind of silly almost, if you really think about it, not to take away from the tithe, because obviously it's a biblical model. And it's a great model in your giving. But I would emphasize, 
it's not like paying the government 30% or something or whatever, the state, the feds, or whatever. I mean, the tenth just recognizes that God's over all of it. It's all from him. Or as Job said when he lost everything, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And his wife said, just curse God and die. And he goes, we've accepted blessings. Should we not accept adversity? And what did Paul say? I've learned to abound, I've learned to abase. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The tithe isn't a tax that comes from heaven. The tithe is just a symbolic bowing of the knee that says, God, you're over everything. And we need to know he's over everything. Our breath of life, our, our, our good health, our poor health, our fading health. He's over everything. Everything we have is from the Lord. In listening to Pastor Chuck teach Ecclesiastes recently, I could tell he was a bit frustrated with Solomon because you can always kind of read Chuck. And in talking about Ecclesiastes, he said it's such a, a futile book because it's limiting to the human experience to two dimensions because we're spirit, mind, and body. And Ecclesiastes is looking at life without the spirit and devoid of a spiritual life. And so the frustration with you accumulate all this wealth and someone takes it from you. And you know, when Chuck talks about like having all this money and then your relatives and the distant relatives and the government and you throw in all these taxation brackets from the 70s of what government does. It's actually, it's worth listening to. Pastor Chuck, Ecclesiastes 1 through 6, it's worth listening to. But the point is, is his emphasis from four decades ago to a bygone generation was that once you add the Holy Spirit and you're complete, you're born again and you're made anew, everything is the Lord's. And you don't worry about it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. And we're here. And it's not about a tithe. It's about our whole life belonging to the Lord. It's about our thoughts belonging to the Lord. It's about our private time belonging to the Lord. It's about our marriages belonging to the Lord, our singleness, our wealth, our poverty, our job, our losing our job, our education. It's all the Lord. Our special needs children, our adopted children, everything. It's all the Lord's. It's his. And as Hudson Taylor would say, let him bear it. Hudson Taylor used to get so overwhelmed at the thought of these missionaries that would come on six-month journeys to come to China and work for the Inland China Mission without any guaranteed support in the 1800s in times of war and poverty. And he, and he was so terrified of that that he couldn't even start the Inland China Mission. And God said, it's mine. It's all mine. You're calling China. The people are going to come. It's all mine. You give it to me and don't take it back. It's all mine. It's all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. He's coming back with all this wealth from this great military campaign. And the king of Sodom's like, oh, oh, the people, oh, she's back, good. Yeah, these people, oh, the, yeah, he knows how to make a lot of money. Da, ba, 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 ba. And he's looking at all these people, and he's like, and, and Melchizedek comes on the scene, and, and Abraham just bows the knee and gives the tithe. And does everything there with Melchizedek and gets the perspective of eternity and the things that really matter. That tithe is much more than a tithe. It basically says, all I am, all I'll ever be is you. It's all from you and for you. So let's go forward. And that's why in the very next verse of chapter 15, do not be afraid. I'm your great shield and your reward. I've got you. But the last thing is the Sodom king. Hey, keep the wealth. Give us the people. Isn't that the world wants the, the people? The people, because people's a great asset. The communists want to control people. 
Political parties want to control people. The devil loves souls, and the battle for one soul is incredible if you've ever tried to just win one person to the Lord. It's the people. Keep all the goods. Keep all the goods. I want the people. And, you know, Abram, just, he just said, I'm not going to take anything from you. I take nothing from you. See, it's interesting. He, he gives the tithe to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom's like, hey, this is awesome. So let's have a little settlement here without arbitration. I give you everything but the people. How's that sound? He goes, I don't want anything. I don't want you saying you made me rich. God is the one who provides for me. God's the one who blesses me. I don't need you or your money or your worldview or the compromise I need to make to receive your money. And of course, this brings us to closing with Pastor Chuck's famous story when they were building 3800 South Bearview Avenue over there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And they needed a million dollars. And a man came up to Chuck and handed him a check for a million dollars. Seven-digit check. That's a pretty big check, you know, especially for a guy that pastored a lot of small churches for a lot of years. And Chuck was like, whoopee, yippee. And he goes home and he tells Kay, yippee, you know. And then, and then the Lord's like, you can't take it. You can't receive that million dollars because that man will say he made this ministry and only I can make this ministry. You know, the man that can turn down a million dollar tithe is probably the man that can be entrusted with a billion dollar tithe. Just for the record. Just saying. Or as a wealthy friend once told me, it's just zeros. <laughs> yeah, but they do make a difference. You know? no, it's just zeros. It's just zeros. It's all that it is. And all gets left behind. As a Calvary Chapel pastor, I got to say, of all things that Pastor Chuck, our founder, did in his lifetime that inspires me, turning down a million-dollar tithe to build your new sanctuary, it's right up there in the top three. It makes podium. It's, that's really something special. Because most of the time, if someone offered you a lot of money and said, no, it's just for you, you'd be like, well, what's the catch, right? See, and, and that's kind of like this king of song, like, hey, you can have the thing, but, you know, there's going to be a catch because now we're an alliance together. We're a partnership. No, no we're not. It's a one-time deal. And I didn't do it for you. I did it for a lot. You see the distinction? So who you give to and who you honor is the Lord, everything. But who you don't take from also is a way of honoring the Lord. As much as Abraham giving the tithe of Melchizedek stands out to us, we cannot miss that he who would not take from the kings of Sodom because he has nothing in common with the kings of Sodom. He's the one that's going to intercede for the people of Sodom in just a couple chapters. Light and darkness, there's always a distinction. And it definitely affects the pocketbook. So let God own everything. And no compromises. That's the lesson of Abraham and Melchizedek.